0: You know, even though I've done historical work, I'm looking at a phenomenon that's still present uh, and could make interventions in that. And so, yeah, it was really exciting to have that kind of come at me randomly and that I just was inspired one day. (laughs) People took the bait and I was really both proud and humbled to feel like I might have a voice in these larger conversations.
1: Welcome back to Sound Expertise. I'm your host, Will Robin, and this is a podcast where I talk to my fellow music scholars about their work and why it matters. So, way back in 2011, when I started grad school, I had kind of an unusual dual track thing going. I had been writing concert reviews on my blog for a couple years and some journalistic stuff for the New York Times. As I began taking seminars and working on a thesis and then dissertation, I continued that work as a music writer slash critic slash journalist. I never really knew what to call myself or how to square those activities with my more traditionally musicological coursework. But then, at some point in the mid-2010s, I heard the phrase public musicology, and it all clicked. I was a public musicologist. I could write a dissertation for 10 people to read and a New Yorker article for hopefully many more people to read, and they were both theoretically part of the same thing. Quote-unquote public-oriented work has been around in my field for a very, very long time, but only fairly recently has it been branded as public musicology. And right around the same time that I was thinking about myself through this lens, another scholar whose work I've known and admired since back then was as well, Douglas Shadle, Associate Professor of Musicology at Vanderbilt University. Professor Shadle is the author of some really brilliant and fascinating scholarship on American orchestral culture, Dvorak and Florence Price, including two excellent books. But I wanted to talk to him for sound expertise about this idea of musicology for non-academic audiences, how he came to do it, how he came to understand it, and what impact it can have. We also talk a bit about the complicated Florence Price revival and the potentially predatory publication model that's emerged around her work, which I should add will tee up next week's episode very nicely. So I hope you enjoyed this great conversation with Doug Shadle. I've been thinking a little bit about like what we should talk about today, and um, you've done so much different work in so many different areas. And, and one of the things that I've been kind of settled about maybe starting our conversation with is I think you had, and I think we had a conversation about this at some point, a fairly kind of typical scholarly trajectory through your first book in terms of you know going to grad school. We actually went to the same grad program writing a dissertation, turning the dissertation into a great book about American music and and American symphonies, and then kind of when that book came out in 2015, then beginning to pivot more in a direction towards more public-oriented rather than academic-oriented work. So is that accurate? And if it is, can you talk a little bit about how that kind of pivot happened for you?
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, quite a bit of it was unplanned in the sense that you're right that I had a standard trajectory uh, toward a book after the dissertation, the book was based on the dissertation. But um, in terms of pivoting in any conscious way to public musicology, I I was in the fortunate, the very fortunate and privileged stance of having my book come out two years onto the tenure track. Mm. And so I had been off the tenure track for four years and then on the tenure track for two And so my book came out uh, in the second year. And so I was thinking about what could I possibly do uh, toward a next book project or change directions and this sort of thing. Well, it just so happened that um, in 2018, very early in 2018, a lot of orchestras made their season announcements and I had just been working on a, a pivot project on the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which was to edit some interviews and reviews by the renowned Chicago Sun-Times critic Andrew Patner. I was doing this uh, for University of Chicago Press with John Schmidt, a Chicago attorney who is one of Andrew Patner's friends. And I had been working on that for about a year at this point. So this was 2017 into 2018. And when these season announcements came out in 2018, many orchestras, programmed entire years with no music by women at all hmm. and it created a significant twitter firestorm back yeah. in the days when twitter was a bit more vibrant than it is now
1: <laughs> i want to I return to the death of twitter today yeah right yeah
0: of course so um so in any case these announcements came out and, and many people were griping on twitter and so uh it was like one one wednesday afternoon i sat down in my office and i reflected on this issue of lack of diverse programming, not only in terms of race and ethnicity, but in terms of gender, style, time period. Uh, Because my first book, Orchestrating the Nation, really interrogated these issues deeply in terms of like, why, why are these composers who are writing very good music, why is their music not being performed? What motivations might organizations have for not performing this music? And so I tried to illuminate... Uh, in a Twitter thread of all places, some of these questions and why it's just not only morally bad and um, disruptive to the entire musical ecosystem to have undiverse programming, but also what could be done about it. um, When we talk about systemic discrimination, for example, how do we diagnose the various parts of the system so that we break the cycles that lead to these situations? And so I, I wrote the thread. I, I, you know, I wasn't a Twitter, uh, a big big name on Twitter at that time or anything. But I wrote the thread, and then I went into a harp recital hearing, which I do sometimes on campus for the students. And um, when I came back, I had just a million notifications. And so mm-hmm. apparently, this this thread had had touched a nerve in a good way, in that people understood that it's that, that this issue of diversity isn't just. A yes, no question. Sure. But there's, there are several interlocking variables that can lead to this. Um, and, and, and a lot of people responded positively to what I had to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I've been thinking, I was actually just talking to someone, a student at another university wanted to talk to me about some of my writing work yesterday. And we were speaking over the phone. And I was like, kind of reflecting on um, that historical moment that now feels like it's past of like the twenties, tens, and early 2020s in which music academics could go on Twitter and say things and people would care because I don't know what happened to Twitter in the last six months I mean I do know what happened but like it seems like it's no longer a thing uh and that's too bad um but yeah like when when you started doing that and you felt like people cared did that feel different from writing and publishing a well-regarded and interesting academic book. Like what what was that response like and, and how did that help you kind of re-understand what you wanted your role to be as a scholar?
0: Oh yeah, no, it, it was huge, Will. I mean, this was, it was very validating. Um, I mean, even after this first thread, I mean, you're talking more about the next year or so of my work, but um, after that first Twitter thread, I got emails, I got people in the industry who wanted to talk to me on the phone and just kind of bad ideas around about you know what what do I see as the future for orchestras um and so uh, having people interested in my take on history informing future directions in the industry was hugely validating and um it, it, there was actually a review of my book by the composer, Kyle Gann, that also kind of articulated this for me, where I, I thought the book was narrating a story about the 19th century. And then in the epilogue, I talk about how I think it influenced composition in the early 20th century. But uh, Kyle, in his review, wrote that um, even his students today greatly prefer European composers over American composers, which is one of the theses of my book is sort of why sure. why there's this European bias And he said that um, that what I was capturing was a phenomenon that still exists.
1: Right. And
0: for him to articulate that actually discerned for me that the stories I was researching had contemporary relevance, even if the music I was talking about, say, William Henry Fry's symphonies may not be, you know, the most. The most interesting to to re to resuscitate. I mean, I think they would be good, but yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. The, but it's not like it's, it's not easier. about. The, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not about the repertoire at this point. It's about uh, ideologies and patterns of behavior, and larger organizational incentives and disincentives um, that shape the industry that that my research was getting at, and being able to articulate those relationships in a contemporary context got people interested and I thought, okay, uh, you know even though I've done historical work, I'm looking at a phenomenon that's still present uh, and could make interventions in that. And so yeah, it was really exciting um, to have that to kind of come at me randomly and that I just was inspired one day and people people took the bait and 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 I, I was really um, both proud and humbled to feel like I might have a voice in these larger conversations.
1: Yeah, yeah. I want to kind of come back to what you kind of did next and how you might have conceptualized that as public musicology, which is a word I spend too much time thinking about and I'm trying to spend less time <laughs> thinking about. Um, but what, maybe just talk a little bit about what some of the historical threads from your book that you see kind of moving into the contemporary context and that you do, you saw then and maybe see now as relevant to this kind of programming conversation.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the big ones is, is double standards, where um, aesthetic judgment is frequently used to cover for other kinds of bias. Um, and this is a phenomenon that uh, African-American composers, women, um, other you know, very large groups that have historically been disenfranchised or even marginalized in the classical music industry have discussed. That um, there's a famous article, for example, in 1950 by William Grant Still, where he says that um, the more an African-American composer incorporates uh, idioms of the African diaspora and the classical music, the more they're seen as merely a racial composer. Um, And then the more that they choose to write an abstract music, critics will say that they have betrayed somehow their racial identity is, is kind of the gist of this quotation. And so, you know, that's, that's an aesthetic judgment being used as cover for discrimination against a, a kind of human being. Um, and it, it, it then that, that that goes all the way back to the, the early 19th century where composers were uh, belittled, for writing music that could be interpreted as uniquely American sounding, however we want to define that. But I mean, there are many cases. Um, and so, you know, there was another really terrific article uh, much more recently by the composer, Sarah Kirkland Snyder about this very issue too right, of, right, yeah. of um, called Candy Floss and Merry-Go-Rounds that she wrote for New Music Box, where she explains how critics um, used very gendered expressions to describe um you know, expressive, emotional, we'll say conventionally expressive music with tonal, tonal motion and this sort of thing, Um, how that was gendered feminine and how that's bound up to her identity as a woman and, and, and uh, in a negative way in the criticism. And so, you know, this is the sort of thing that, that continues to inform uh, programming choices. And in, in Sarah Kirkland Snyder's case, how women are taught in, uh, music schools because she experienced a lot of uh, negative feedback on you know not being angular enough or you know modernist enough sure. um, in training and so that that's that's the main thread that I think um, emerged was from the book is the the notion of double standards and that aesthetics are often used to um, shield other personal biases.
1: Yeah, and but obviously in the. For the most part, in the context of the book, you were really talking about white American men versus white European men, right? So it's like the, you see this double standard happening with Fry or something, but it, you see it also resonating. Fry as an American versus a European, but you also see it resonating with still as as African American or or Snyder as a, a woman um, resonating the same the same kinds of discourses. Right. Exactly.
0: And you know, it's I it's tough to to sort of boo-hoo over these very privileged white American men um, because part, I want to make this clear for listeners is that um, in the 19th century United States, the industry was so discriminatory against people of color and women that that these individuals were, were rarely, I mean, very rarely performed at all. I mean, I'm thinking about uh, Amy Beach, for instance, coming very late in the century, being one of the first women uh, programmed by a major american orchestra although there were you know a couple of other um small exceptions and so the 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 point here is that there were strategies and tools for discrimination that emerged in the 19th century that as american white american men composers became more accepted into the fabric of the industry in the early 20th century these same strategies were then applied hmm. to to the emergent uh African American composers, uh, other composers of color and women, uh, because these tools were were just there in the critics' toolbox. They were there in the right, organizational right. toolbox. And so it's 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 sort of like just as these groups uh emerge into the realm of possibility, the rug is pulled out from under them uh with these same same strategies. And so um I, I think the story that begins in orchestrating the nation is really still unfolding um as as composers and organizations figure out um how to be more inclusive.
1: Yeah. Right, right. So you lay out some of this some of these ideas in that thread back in twenty eighteen and you start to have conversations with people and, and how where does it kind of go from there? What are kind of the the conversations that you see kind of bearing saw then or see now bearing fruit, what are the other kinds of public oriented work you started embarking on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think one one of the big ones is is the notion that uh, women have only recently begun to compose um, is I found to be a a deeply ingrained falsehood um in the industry that musicologists, of course, have been addressing for decades and decades, but just hasn't quite percolated into the to general mindset. I mean, there was this article in response to um, some of some of the Twitter discourse around women in, in 2018. Um, there was an NPR article where the CEO of the League of American Orchestras said, well, you know, the canon is is all male because there just weren't women composing. And I just think to myself, well, gosh, if the CEO of the League of American Orchestras has this, you know, rather narrow view of what repertoire is out there, then like that's a real problem because it's even though he at the time obviously didn't represent all the collective knowledge in the industry, he, he crystallized in a symbolic of uh, a kind of power structure, and and you know, if he doesn't know, then you know, a thousand other people don't know, and so. Um, part of my work has been discerning how to pivot from historical knowledge about women or other composers uh, whose work has been, you know, kind of um, programmed less or lost or however you want to think of it, um, how to pivot to getting that music on, on the actual concert stage. And of course um, some of that work aligned with my parallel work on Florence Price. And so 2018 was also the year when Florence Price entered into public discourse at a, a very high level with, with stories by Alex Ross in The New Yorker and Michaela Baranello in The New York Times, also in early 2018. And so the convergence of thinking about general systemic discrimination and Price as a, you know, for lack of a better term, a kind of case study in the historical uh, discrimination as well as its residual after effects, um, I think changed the conversation to not only, oh, this thing happened and it was bad, but oh, this thing happened, it was bad, and now what can be done to shift our thinking? And in my experience over the past five years, I think organizations have, have become more attuned to the fact that it, it's a historical problem and to a certain extent, even a historiographical problem that needs to be solved as much as just an internal organizational problem. I mean, you know, you can do all the bias training in the world, but then if you don't have access to the tools and resources to change your programming um, so that it's not just like commissioning a new artist, but also find, finding, you know, older works that, that, um, That truly diversify um, a portfolio, then you're just not, you know, you're not doing anything. Like all, all, you know, again, all the bias training in the world is is good on a certain level, but it doesn't quite turn that corner into um, what happens in the organization and what goes on stage. And so, my my work has has informed that corner turning.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I think that's significant. I mean, it seems to me. And, like, I am going to be – I am hopeful that orchestra's programming, Price's work, and Stills' work, and Dawson's work, and, and, you know, a handful of other composers, not more than a handful, unfortunately, is, like, not a two-year fad and is something more enduring, which is kind of like, you know, in the way that – Every music director who does Beethoven and Mahler and Brahms also has their pet project, and if they're like a white European music director, it's usually like, "I want to record Carl Nielsen or whatever." That's right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so, like, you know, if some of those composers can become the staples, like the Nielsens or the Sibeliuses, where you, you know they're not—oh, Sibelius is more at the forefront—but like, they end up in every season in some capacity rather than just in these kind of specific moments and specific whatever programs about Black History Month. Um, and and yeah it does seem to me like the musicologist has a significant role to play there. Um so at what point did you did you think of what you were doing as public musicology and what did that phrase mean to you or does it mean to you?
0: <laughs> I yeah yeah um the million dollar question. I mean yeah, it's I I don't know that I conceived of what I was doing as different in kind from like just musicology. Mm -hmm. And it it was simply um, thinking about the applications of my research differently than having a pure scholarly application, we we might say. And so um, public musicology for me would be about um, the audience for the work. And in this case, it wasn't necessarily... Um, just a, a, a sort of anonymous, large-scale general public. But it was, um, I, I wanted to reach the administrators of orchestras, the kind of these, these these historical power brokers. And and fortunately, I was able to do that. I mean, I, I was told that um, there were some orchestras, even major orchestras, that circulated the article for ICareIfYouListen.com that came out in the wake of the, the Twitter thread about systemic discrimination. And then it sort of made the rounds among staffers and they were asking themselves, oh, you know, okay, maybe he's onto something about these incentive structures, um, the financial incentives that say that agents have with soloists and conductors to keep things on the conservative side and, 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 you know, not ruffle any feathers and all of this. And so they were able to, um, you know, I don't know how deep it was, but do a little bit of introspection on, their their own involvement in these structures um that lead to the inertia that I was trying to diagnose. And so in, in a sense, that that was a terrific consequence. And so like that that's why I'm using the word application. So it was a different application of musicological thinking rather than sort of a, you know, a, a an all-blast um you know shift in how how I'm approaching issues or, or like who I'm trying to reach. Um, now just by happenstance. Okay. Now this is another just lucky, very lucky privileged thing that happened to me um, in November, maybe late October, November of 2018, same year. I was working on a Dvorak new world symphony project and NPR released a story on Dvorak's New World Symphony that I thought was just completely wrong. (laughs) And so I ended up making my first pitch to the New York Times saying like, look, I've got all this research that shows this story is just wrong. And then I said that this 2018 is the 125th anniversary of the New World Symphony. It's a timely uh, moment to be thinking about this piece and its relationship to all these other issues that I've been discussing, like American composers and race and all this other other stuff. Would um, would your readers be interested in this this kind of uh, essay? And so Zachary Wolf the Times, approved the pitch, and um, that was a, still a different application of um, you know, for, again, for lack of a better term, combating fake news that I think had had circulated for, as I argue in the piece, about seventy years. I mean, it goes back to Leonard Bernstein saying that. Sure. Um, You know, American composers knew nothing and Dvorak taught them all these things. Um, And so that was a case where I was trying to reach a large, knowledgeable audience and trying to set the record straight um, without the kind of organizational ties of some of my other work. But I mean, 2018 was just a real like lightning in a bottle situation where things that were very related to the previous work I had done were percolating in the larger public discursive sphere in classical music circles, and and I, I was able to participate in those discussions and was welcomed as a participant, fortunately.
1: So let's talk a little bit about kind of the price work in terms of how it relates to some of the public work you were doing Um the price work comes out of your Dvořák research. Is that kind of right? How did you end up pivoting pivoting towards Florence Price in the time in which there seems to be an increasing momentum towards in, in looking at her music?
0: Yeah. So, the the price work really comes more out of the the nineteenth century American work. In that, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In that, she was a, a student of George Chadwick at the New England Conservatory, and I thought that stylistically. Uh, her music it sort of fits in this vein of thinking about the orchestra as a vehicle of of expression of national identity, and developing an American sound. And of course, she was active at one one of several peaks of interest in uh, defining an American sound. And so, um, she she had always been kind of kind of a. a Part of the next chapter if you will or the next volume of orchestrating the nation um were to such a thing or such a thing to exist. Um, but the the again the wild and very lucky story behind price is that as I was mapping out the Dvorak book in 2015 right as orchestrating the Nation came out um I was planning to visit the University of Arkansas which holds the William Grant still papers and uh, literally that summer, is when the recently recovered manuscripts of price that had been found in 2009 the summer of 2015 is when they became available for scholarship and so while i was planning a trip to visit the still papers like literally the finding aid for the price papers came up on the special collections website and i thought oh my god is am i seeing this properly like is this music that we thought was lost and is now available for study and so in addition to working on still uh for the Dvorak book um i i re kind of reoriented my whole thinking about price now that there was this tremendous amount of music and and other biographical material and so i thought gosh i can't just relegate my work on price to the third of a chapter, third of a short chapter that it was going to be in the Dvorak book. Like there was just way too much material um, that needed to be assimilated into ongoing historiography, not only of price, but of African-American classical music making. Um, And so I was just barely able to scratch the surface there. Um, But because I had access to, you know, it's like 19 plus giant boxes of archival material, including all these scores I got to thinking about well how how do how do we make this music available, and the the copyright status at that time was really fuzzy. Um, Professor Raylinda Brown, who was a preeminent Price scholar um, through the year 2017, when she passed away, um, had been serving as a kind of intermediary agent for the Price estate and her granddaughter. Uh, in California that had come about in the 90s and so when Ray Linda died there, there was really kind of a this very nebulous moment about here's all this terrific music H- how do we get it performed in a way that honors legal protections but also the estate um and so on and so forth well then Shermer Thinking about the year 2018 as a super Nexus moment for me. Right. In 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 2018 is also when G. Shermer acquired the global rights to Price's music from um Price's granddaughter in California. And so uh, I had been working with the musicologist and pianist Samantha Age for about two years by 2018. And um we we were a little bit suspicious of the Shermer acquisition, like what's going on here. And
1: sorry, were you so were you already planning a price book with, with, um, no, at that point, or you were just collaborating with her on it?
0: Yeah, no, 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 no. So we, we met very early on because, um, she was working, she was still working on her dissertation at, uh, the university of York in the UK with, um, Bill Brooks, who is a distinguished, uh, member of the society for for american music american music historian and bill introduced me to Samantha um, pretty early i guess the timing was actually 2017 it was after the rochester meeting of the american musicological society bill and i met at the airport and then Samantha and i were emailing a day later and you know sort of the rest is history and that we we just decided oh you know, you've seen this you've seen this i've seen this i've seen this and we just started sharing things and we didn't start putting a book together, a book idea together until much, much later. Um, we were just like idea bouncers for several years, um, which which was really incredible. And uh, in any case, back to 2018, so that had been going on for about a year rather than two years, uh, which I said earlier. But in any case, for about a year, um, we had been thinking about price and sort of different avenues for getting the music out there. And then when Shermer entered the, entered the story, it was just a whole other ball game because they were going to have an international marketing arm and distribution right, and all of this. Right, so right. um they they took care of the access issue on a certain level um and and maybe we can get a chance to discuss how yeah. that that has shifted <laughs> in in my humble opinion um but yeah so so to come back to the original question briefly um you know my work on price uh emerged as a more significant thread just at precisely the time, all of these other threads came together in 2018, and so um, that year is just the, the most pivotal, most memorable, um, exciting year for me as a scholar.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the Schirmer thing because it seems to represent. I mean, I know you're interested in exploring this in your work and 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 a pro- the problem of it, which is basically like, it is. I think it's a similar thing with Julius Eastman now, where basically you have. Yeah a somewhat obscure composer who has been championed for a long time by certain folks in in circles that are often marginalized african-american musicians hbcus um or you know in the case of eastman like personal friends and and folks in the world of new music and then there's an explosion of interest in scholarship and in performance and then a giant publisher comes along and says oh we're going to advocate for this composer thing and everyone's like oh my god this is an amazing moment and then (laughs) things in some ways get easier because major orchestras have relationships with these publishers and then all the other people who are kind of doing the work to begin with often kind of get left in the dust because suddenly they're being charged hundreds or thousands of dollars to do the things that they were able to do before um, so can you talk a little bit about what's happened so far with shirmer and price and and how you're navigating it
0: yeah i mean and i i, I just want to commend you for articulating that problem so well and so accurately because um the, the publishers in this case are are for profit and the work that was being done uh previously in the case of Eastman and Price is all non-profit um in the sense that it, it, it was often subsidized say by universities uh, university faculty um Often not for ticket sales, um, although it's not exactly true with, say, CD recordings, <clears throat> which which have record sales. But uh, in any case.
1: Yeah, but those, I mean, those CDs were not being released on commercial labels. Yeah, you? no, right, exa- exactly. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's, it's um, you know, sort of, um, again, the, the kind of university and nonprofit sector of the recording industry um, where these are coming out. So... When, when the for-profit publisher comes in, their motivation is, is rather clear, which is to extract as much uh, profit as they can from the situation. And so they therefore emphasize certain things like speed, uh, efficiency, and uh, expanse. And sometimes those values really fly in the face of uh, musical and creative integrity, um, and I'll just cite one quick example there.
1: Yeah, I mean, cite, cite a longer example too. Like, Sh- I, Schirmer, yeah, I think it's Sh- worth explaining what's going on with the price stuff.
0: Yeah. So, Shermer historically, and in the case with Price, has not produced the best editions for people to use. And one story that I tell to to kind of illustrate how long this has been going on is that you can go to the John Alden Carpenter papers at the Library of Congress, John Alden Carpenter was a composer who was a contemporary of Price, a very wealthy man um, who married a, a, an industry heiress of some kind and uh, was just able to compose freely uh, because he had all the time in the world to do this. Well, it, there's like a folder that's his correspondence with Shermer and his concertino for piano and orchestra, which um, anyone who knows anything about Price knows that Margaret Bond's was the soloist for this concertino uh, for piano and orchestra at the, at the premiere of Price's first symphony with the Chicago symphony in 1933. So there's a price connection and this is why I was looking at it. But uh, in any case, it's like 20 years of correspondence with Shermer about like how they just cannot get the score and the parts to the concertino. Right. And he's just going back with them you know, and like edits after edits. And so whatever their workflow is uh, at that time, just was not working for Carpenter and you know i have all the love in the world for people who do the engraving of uh these scores you know i know that working at a publisher is not the most um you know the most prestigious or even lucrative job for an individual um but the values of the company are such that there is a a payoff for the company to get things out as quickly as possible which of course humans being humans could lead to certain errors and also <clears throat> the, there are things like manuscript variants among the various manuscripts of prices orchestral works i mean never mind the songs and other things where um you know is it a b natural is it a b flat is it like is an instrument missing like there's all sorts of stuff that if you're just going doing a diplomatic transcription meaning an exact transcription of uh one of Price's manuscripts, and you're not looking at the variants, and you're just trying to pump it out there. It might actually sound kind of bad. Um, she she was very much a binge composer and copyist, and you know I have a lot of evidence for this where she was she herself was working very rapidly, and so there are just things that a, a, some careful attention to her working methods and kind of the scores and the evidence that we have might lead you in different directions from the Shermer editions and so you know I've spoken to many conductors orchestra librarians um soloists who have complained about how the editions uh do a disservice can do a disservice to price because performed as is just sound kind of bad and if that is an audience's first exposure to price's music and it just doesn't sound good um Will they walk away not liking price? will they say, oh, what's all the hype when say the the album that won the Grammy uh had um Nicole Jordan, the orchestra librarian for the Philadelphia Orchestra and Lena Gonzalez Granados um the conductor uh the prep conductor for that fix a ton of stuff hmm. in those scores and parts Wow to get clean versions of these things for the, for the album that won the Grammy. And so it's like, you know, you, if let's say an audience member knows that this music won a Grammy and then they go hear it at their local orchestra and, and that conductor has had maybe a week to rehearse and has has done the best they can just to kind of fix (laughs) what they hear on the fly. um, Then that can lead to some bad outcomes for, for price and and audience uh, reception yeah so yeah, so I mean it's it's just a a situation where when the people who are in the operation care about the entire operation soup to nuts, then it, the outcomes I think would tend to be better on an artistic level social level um I mean, there are terrific benefits to having the the international marketing and distribution infrastructure don't get me wrong i mean that that's huge but there are these significant drawbacks of you know the bottom line driving the decision making and and every other decision flowing from there
1: right i mean it seems also and i don't know the details of this so i'm curious but it also removes this music from a lot of the worlds in which being performed because it's become prohibitively expensive. Is that the case? So, like, oh yeah, have, no, I mean, yeah. prices, music being a part since she was alive of like HBCU performance, and I imagine that's not as much able to be possible. Is that is that true? Is that a, is there a pricing issue that's kind of pricing people out of being able to perform her music?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know how public um, the numbers are, but I mean the the per minute charge for some of the shorter pieces like Ethiopia's shadow of America or shadow in America and um, the piano concerto uh, some of these nicer pieces that are short. I mean, it's just exorbitant and university orchestras are going to have problems uh, affording some of that music. And, you know, university orchestras are are training grounds for the next generation of professional performers. And if if they cannot access this great diverse repertoire at the university level, that's just yet another layer of inertia. Right. That ripples out into the professional world.
1: Well, and it's it's also it goes back to that thing too of like if this is a fad in the mainstream orchestral world where it's two years of price and then they go back to Sibelius, then it's just been captured by this Then no one will be able to play it. Like if the only people who can afford to play it are the people who have the most money, then the colleges won't be able to play it. Period. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And then when, and sort of when you look at the other side of that coin, Shermer would look even worse as just kind of a as much extraction as possible in a very short period of time, and that they somehow timed the market extremely well, and then everything goes back to normal. And nothing has changed. It's like
1: speculation or
0: something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then then only Shermer is sort of the Wall Street winner at that point, um, with with no one else coming out transformed at all. Yeah, and and I was just going to mention earlier that that in the case of the orchestral music, say in HBCUs, um, my understanding at least is that uh, the orchestral pieces are only available for rental, and that even creating a study score. Um, an inexpensive study score that could go say to an HBCU library like Morgan state or or Fisk or Tennessee state near me, Uh, Morgan state in Baltimore is one of the bigger um, music programs, but say Howard two in Washington, DC Uh, you know, they can't have it. Wow. And so even um, finding space in spaces that price has historically occupied has been, prohibitively expensive, if not just impossible because of the um, the way the publisher system uh, is working right now. And so you know, in terms of access like yes, many access doors have been opened, but many many access doors have been closed and um, on the scholarly side, the amount of money it costs to reproduce even eight measures of music for a scholarly article is is really expensive, um, right now. and so, it, it diminishes scholarly access uh, because, again, let's say you're an early career or even a dissertating musicologist. Where's that money going to come from?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And so again, it's the the, the rich fe- feeding, you know, feeding on the less privileged, and all of that money flowing upward.
1: Yeah. So beyond just like yelling at Shermer, what is your? I mean, how are you starting to conceive of a potential solution to this, both in terms of this specific issue and more broadly in terms of this kind of larger question?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I see a lot of possibility in in digital spaces, and you know, I'm I'm very loath to say that tech is the solution to any problem these days. I mean, you know, there are so many problems with big tech that that I'm not going in that direction. It's rather um, in more low tech directions. Um, in, in the fall of 2019, uh, my colleague, Joy Calico, and the, a librarian at Tufts named Anna Kios, uh, led a music encoding initiative boot camp and workshop at Vanderbilt. And the music encoding initiative is uh, a largely European effort, but also has some adherence elsewhere. Um, to develop machine-readable music notation using uh, basic XML, and what this means is that if 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 it's machine-readable, it's essentially all text uh, text descriptions of a score. You know, to make five lines with you know a G on this space in the staff, and for this duration. So it's text instructions on how to generate notation. And um, this approach to notation, I thought was super interesting because we had a student who did a a senior honors thesis on some manuscript versions of an opera that the conductor had changed. And he, he put these into the music encoding and you could kind of toggle between the, the, the various versions and sort of visualize all of these changes in the manuscripts from manuscript to performance. And I uh, like the pandemic hit, and, and this was always sort of lingering in, in the background. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, this digital edition would be an incredible thing to create um, once Price's music enters into the public domain mm. because, you know, a giant paper critical edition is also prohibitively expensive Especially if we're thinking about access in, say, places like uh, you know all, all of Africa, um, where there could be issues w- either with universities, but also um, computing resources uh, can be limited, and so developing an accessible digital edition seemed like an interesting problem to dive into. And so I kind of had that on the back burner because I was focusing on the Dvorak book and then developing the Price book with Samantha. Um, But then last December, my music librarian, Holling Smithborn, said, have you ever thought about doing a Florence Price thematic catalog? And I thought, well, oh, no, I haven't. Um, But then in about a week, like another lightning bolt hit, which was, oh, what if I tried to do a digital thematic catalog? As a proof of concept for huh. a larger critical edition of Price's music, and so I I met with uh, Anakias again at Tufts, and we talked about how to use um, GitHub as a repository for uh, storing data to go in the thematic catalog, and then how to develop the the web infrastructure uh, through GitHub to host the thematic catalog in an open access uh, format. And so it's all open source, it's all open access. And what's incredible is that the, the kind of data storage is all uh, markdown lang- programming language, which is essentially a .txt file, and therefore it takes up a tiny amount of space. And so the, the thematic and shippets are all rendered um, through MEI, the, the kind of XML-based notation, so that when you go to an entry, it, you can pop up the theme and it uses practically no computing resources. Um, the information pages for each entry are are all text-based, but it looks really nice because there are some skins um, that web developers have put together for this sort of thing. And so um, I, I my my current project to complement the book with an E, complement with an E, is this thematic catalog that has all sorts of information about where the manuscripts live. Uh, it's got thematic in It's got, for the songs, it's got things like lyricists and the source. And if Price's source differs from the original source, I've got that information in there, mm. you know, about like what book was she reading to find this poem? Um, so it's got all sorts of information there that you would find in a traditional research and information guide um, as well as a thematic catalog. And so that's sort of a proof of concept for, you know, how to make, Good information, good musical information, yeah available for scholars, performers, and anyone interested in price in the general public even um that doesn't have these these two barriers of price with a lowercase b okay expense cost sure that, that's not a barrier. And then also, um computing resources and bandwidth uh, and and physical space are not barriers either,
1: yeah, so, cool. Yeah. Well, that sounds very excited. I'm curious to see how that turns out. And uh, thank you so much for speaking with me.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Well, yeah, it's my
1: pleasure to to chat with you. Many thanks to Douglas Shadle for that fascinating conversation. You can read more about his work over on our website, soundexpertise.org. Our inbox is open. If you have questions or thoughts about the show, email us at soundexpertise00 at gmail or tag me on Twitter or Instagram at SeatedOvation. Many thanks as always to D. Edward Davis for his production work. You can catch his music on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. I'm grateful to Andrew Delantonio for transcribing our episodes to make them more accessible. And this episode of Sound Expertise was recorded at the National Foreign Language Center with support from University of Maryland's School of Music. Next week on Sound Expertise, the complicated revival of Julius Eastman. I mean, one of the things that they did was they, I had, I had brought up some of his, you
0: know, CDs and um, the book. They took all of that off the table. So they weren't, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you're so interested in Julius Eastman and upholding his vision, why are you? First of all, not programming his music and then taking away people's chance to hear his music or read about him.
1: See you then.